Well, this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles and want to go ahead and turn there, you can. If you did not bring it with you today, I'm going to be throwing some of these passages up on the screen so it'll be easy for you to follow along with. But um, title this one, God and Government. Okay, God and Government, uh, How to Win Over Rome. And so we're not talking about how to dominate or destroy Rome, how to woo and win over Rome, how to woo and win an antagonistic government. Uh, in a God-glorifying way. And so um, this is kind of Paul's rhythm throughout his letter to the church in Rome. He's not uh, cognizant of whatever may be um, a controversial or a sensitive subject today. He seems to just jump into it all over the place. Like one minute he's talking about the power of the gospel to save. Next thing we know, talking about the wrath of God and the depth of our sin and all kinds of fun subject matters like that. And then we jump back into the love of God for all of humanity. And then it's all kinds of difficulties like, hey, our continued battle in sin and or tough subjects like the sovereignty of God or words like predestination, uh, things of that nature, the future of Israel and how that's going to play out with them a little bit later on. But this seems to be kind of the rhythm in Paul's letter to uh, the church here in Rome. It's kind of this roller coaster for us as we work through it and uh, we preach through it today. But this is what's going on here in chapter 13. Like This is Paul doing the one thing that we were all taught by our parents you should never, ever do. You don't talk religion and you don't talk politics with your friends and your family, right? Like how many of you guys grew up in, like, this was, your, you know that. You're not supposed to talk religion. You're not supposed to talk politics. Obviously, you're going to talk about religion at church. And so you're prepared for that one a little bit here. But uh, Charlie Brown taught us this back in the day, right? Linus talks about this. I ran across this one here uh, not long ago. But he says, there are three things I've learned never to discuss publicly. Religion, politics, and the great pumpkin. And uh, of course, he's right about that. Like, you never talk about the great pumpkin with friends. Like, that one's even more off limits or something like that. But... Um, I think this is the question that all of us have wrestled with at some point, at least in the past decade, no matter which side of the aisle that you may be on. I mean, you've all wrestled with, okay, how in the world do I interact with a government that I didn't vote for and that I may not fully align with? Maybe their values, their policies, that not exactly in check with where I am or how I feel like God is leading us today. I was reading an article talking recently about how uh, about how political values have been increasingly polarized in the past decade, and America seems to have been on a seesaw recently based on whoever's in office, and we've become more and more polarized and on different ends, and you know, if your guy won or didn't win, then it seems to be war going on in so many different ways. And we ask ourselves the question, like, how do we interact with such a government that we didn't align with, right? I mean, the question, even this past week, I was listening on, on, on Christian radio, a friend was uh, cluing me into this, but the question on Christian radio this past week is, should we even pay taxes to a government whose policies you may not align with? This is the question that was being debated even this past week on 90.9, right? This is, this is the questions that people are asking here today. How am I supposed to interact with a government such as that? How am I supposed to interact with a government as a Christian even living in Rome? Incredibly oppressive government, you know, not all about uh, my thriving or anything like that. How do we live as believers here in Rome? How do we woo and win in such a place? And this is a little bit of what our passage is going to help us with today. And so granted, I want to let you know, like we're not going to be get, getting into all the specifics of how this plays out. 21st century America today, that's not where the text leads us or anything. It will provide a framework for how we think about interacting with such a government in such a God-glorifying way, how to think well about all kinds of different authorities that we may or may not be fully 
fully in alignment with. And so again, Romans 13 verses 1 through 7 is where we're going to hang out today. If you're just joining us in this series, I want to catch you up just a tiny bit of where we are in this text. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing a letter to the church here in Rome. Reminder, the church here in Rome is a very diverse gathering, right? They're not monolithic. They're they're not the same thinking. They're comprised of Jews who had a long religious history, Gentiles who did not. Um, Jews were actually kicked out of Rome for a period of five times before they were, five years before they were brought back in. And so the Jews used to be in charge of the Christian gathering there in Rome. They're kicked out. They're coming back. Now all of a sudden Jews are, or Gentiles are now in control. And uh, this is the context in which Paul comes in and he's writing, hey, the gospel is this unifying theme. It brings together Jews and Gentiles uh, all across the spectrum here. God's grace applies to them both, brings you back into this family. And so it's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 11 chapters of primarily theology about God, what he's been doing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Chapter 12 comes around and gets to the therefore. These are the implications of what you and I are supposed to do with the implications of what God's done for us in Jesus Christ. Christ. And so the, tor- the corner kind of turns a little bit in chapter 12, and uh, he picks back up here in chapter 13 along the same lines. And here's what he says. He says, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. And so generally speaking, this makes sense. This is what he's talking about. Like generally speaking, um, it, it, like you do the right thing and typically it works out pretty well for you. And the reason I say generally speaking is because we know that's not always been the case. Keep in mind, this is not just the word of God for 21st century believers here in America. This is the word of God for people living under oppressive regimes for the past 2,000 years, uh, be that good, be it bad, be it in alignment, be it not in alignment, and it's the exact same word of God coming to them as it is to you and me. And so surely it has not always been the case that you do good, and typically you're going to be in favor. This has been uh, a a lot of the conversations even here recently, but this is what he's talking about. Generally speaking, uh, uh, you do the right thing. Typically, it's going to work out pretty well for you. Uh, A little while ago, I was out driving with Caleb. We were in Dallas. It was one of these days. I don't know if you're ever out there, but it feels like the entire police force is on the street that you're driving on. I don't know, you, you notice it's like you're driving around and, and, and everywhere you go, you're looking at police officers and what happens is like, I always look at the speedometer. I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, am I going the speed limit? Do I have my seatbelt on, right? Are the, are the stickers all up to date? And you kind of freak out a little bit. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm seeing all these police officers and I'm driving around with Caleb and, and he's probably about five at this time, but he's like, daddy, stop panicking. He's like, as long as you're obeying the law, you should be fine. And I was like, thank you, five-year-old son. You're exactly right. But, um, but this is kind of the way that this is exactly what Paul's saying right here. Generally speaking, you do the right thing. It's going to work out pretty well for you in the end, uh, generally speaking, of course. He continues to say, for he is God's servant for your good. Do what is good, you'll receive approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. In other words, what he's saying is like we don't just submit and obey um, out of fear of what may happen if we don't. The ticket, the going to jail, right, getting a record, the, pro- the, the punishments, whatever it may be. Like that's not the only reason we obey. We also obey out of conscious understanding as believers that God is the one who reigns over the entire thing. 
And there is a sense in which their work is meant to be his provision for our ultimate good. This is what he says here in verses 4, 5, and 6 in this passage. There's essentially two ways that a government should work as a servant of God, he says here in this text. Number one, they do punish evil, right? We don't live in anarchy. Everybody rising up, taking up arms, and doing as they see fit. Uh, They do punish evil. Number two, generally speaking, government exists for our good. Generally speaking, of course, right? And so, again, like it says nothing about how much good government should be a part of. It doesn't say anything about the, how, how far it should go, how much detail, right? Should they be really involved, not much involved, or anything like that? It doesn't talk about like how, uh, like how, or, how it should be organized, what the right governing structure may be, or anything like that. It doesn't even talk about like how it should interact with the church, or if it should interact with the church, or anything like that. Um, this is the part that doesn't always get appreciated about government, because this is the stuff that doesn't really make the news, and uh, this is the stuff that You know, it's really not debated much during election season or anything like that, but I want you to think for a second about all the different things that government accomplishes for our good on a day-to-day basis. I mean, even today, like we're, we're honoring and remembering Memorial Day, men and women who have given their lives, laid down their lives for our freedom on behalf of our government, for our protection, for our safety, for our good. This is one of the many provisions that they offer on a day-to-day basis that's easy to take for granted, the roads that we drive on provided by an infrastructure through our government, zoning ordinances, right? Schools, many of you grad, or we had graduations take place this past week, provided through our government, international trade agreements that create jobs and allow for businesses to flourish, uh, they take place through the government. Services like 911, can you imagine where you would be if you had nothing to call on when you were in need? Uh, you can, I, I can't imagine, like, well, who do you call? Like, if it was a nine-digit number, I mean, they gave us three wor- numbers right there. Like, that kind of works out pretty well. Administering justice, this is a big part of it. Administering justice, like there's a legal system, there's checks and balances, like there's authorities that make sure that we don't live in an anarchy where people are just rising up and doing what they want to do. Trash services. I remember being, doing mission work in South Sudan one year and um, was going around there and I had no idea the value of our trash services which government provides. But I, I don't know if you've ever been to a part of the world where they just don't have that. I'm driving around and what would take place is like everyone brings their trash out to the street and they pile it up right there and there's nowhere for it to go and so they burn it. And so we're driving around and that's all you smell is burning trash everywhere you go. I remember talking with one of the missionaries and he goes, yeah, every time I come home on furlough, I kind of come back and take some time and man, I'm reminded of the number of things that I take for granted here living under this government structure that we have here and I take uh, take it for granted every single day. But this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, generally speaking, this is the point of government. This is how, is it, it is how it is an extension of God's goodness and service towards us. And so he continues to say, uh, yeah, pay your taxes, essentially. This is what he says, verse 6, pay your taxes. For the authorities are servants of God, whether they know it or not, attending to these very things. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And so again, this is where this text gets really, really tricky, because he's not talking about submission, honor, and respect necessarily for honorable people or respectable governments. This is the context in which he is writing to the church here in Rome. It is an oppressive regime. This is a government structure in which the people do not align with its policies, nor do they align with the character of the ones who are in charge. 
I mean, we have to understand, like, this is what Paul's talking about right here. Caligula, who was the Caesar just before the time of this letter, had his mom and his brother killed to make sure that they never challenged his right to the throne. Can you imagine if that man was on our ballot? And, like, that's who we were casting a vote for in the next four years from now. Like, a man who literally had his mother and brother killed because, hey, you know what? I didn't want to deal with their competition. Right? He openly committed incest with three of his sisters. This is who he is, historically known about Caligula. Right? He frequently cross-dressed in public. This is what he did. Like, we're not talking about like, books and libraries or anything like that. He actually went to the streets, cross-dressed regularly, and this is the leader of Rome. Right? I love this one. He installed, check this out. This, I'm not making this up. He installed his favorite horse as a senator and then promoted him later to consul. I'm going to say that again because I know you think I'm making this up right now. He promoted a horse to senator and then elevated him, promoted him to consul. Like, how in the world does that work? Like, all in favor, aye. All opposed, nay, right? It's just like (laughs) constant. I'm sorry, that was terrible. Um, I said that. That was from J.D. Greer. I heard that from him. I blame him, but I I thought that was funny. I just rolled it anyway. But can you imagine? The dude promotes a horse. Like, the amount of nonsense coming from the people in charge here. Caligula once got mad at the weather, and he declared war on the god of Nep- on Neptune, the god of the sea. I'm not kidding you. He ordered, his, he ordered his soldiers to go and to whip the sea, take their swords and stab waves. And then they took shells as plunder and brought it back to Caligula. Like lunacy. That's what we're talking about right here. He had the heads of statues of deities removed. And then he put his head on all the busts of those statues. Right? Like, like, that's what he did. It would be like Biden or Trump coming and saying, you know what, all the pictures of Jesus that I see, we're going to cut that off and we're going to put my head there instead. Like, this is the nonsense that's going on right here. Like, during the gladiator games, Caligula would take random people from the crowds and he would throw them into the arena to be eaten by the animals simply for the sake of his own entertainment. Church, like, this is what we're talking about right here. We're not talking about submitting to Abe Lincoln, honest Abe, or an honorable leader. Right, or, to, or, or to a regime that you fully align with or agree with or anything like that. This is what he's talking about. And it's not, it's not just Caligula, right? We know that this isn't just a one-off. Like from Caligula, you've got Claudius. Claudius wasn't, um, wasn't, he wasn't quite as crazy, every bit as evil. Uh, check this one out. Uh, from Claudius, it goes to Nero, whose mom ended up killing Claudius in his sleep so that Nero could replace him. Like, you know it's not going to go well when my mom gets involved in your affairs and starts killing off your enemies, like, it's just, like, this is the structure that's in place right here. Nero turns out to be one of the most sadistic murderers of all time. It's widely believed that he intentionally set fire to Rome. And then he stood on his balcony and played his harp while he was, like he was some sort of a tragic poet. Like, he blamed the Christians for the fire. He crucified hundreds of them. Then he threw a massive party at his house. He took the bodies of these crucified Christians, lined the streets with them, lit them on fire to light up his party. Like, this is the kind of thing that Paul is coming in in the middle of this context. He's saying, be subject to these kinds of, of, of authorities. This is the context in which he's saying, submit to them, honor, and respect them. And every single one of us, we were reading this chapter. Like, this passage has been mulled over a thousand times in the past six, four to six years especially, ten years prior to, like, as long as you've been involved in politics. Like, this is the passage everybody comes to and you're sitting there going, wait, wait, What? How in the world does any of that make any sense? Unless you understand it in the context of what Paul's already been talking about here in chapter 12. 
Like, how, do we, how does any of this make sense unless we see what, the, what he's already been saying to us? Two things primarily here in chapter 12. In verse 19, he's going to say, leave vengeance to the Lord. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Church, I'm telling you, you, we will never be able to do what Paul is going to talk about here. And we'll get into some of the nuances and details in just a minute. We will never be able to do any of these things that Paul's talking about here in this text unless we understand that vengeance belongs to the Lord. This is what he says in verse 19. Never avenge yourselves, believers, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, because God is the one who is always in power, it's okay if you and I are not. Because he's the one who reigns supreme, it's okay even if we're in the minority. It's okay if we don't have our power. We don't have to fight every single battle or take matters into our own hands because no matter what the matter may be, it's never not been in his hands. And so we can leave vengeance to the Lord, he says. This is the first thing he talks about in verse 19. The second one is very, very simply this, that doing good is how evil is overcome. This is the context for this entire passage. And none of chapter 13 will make sense unless we read before and we see the continuation of thought that Paul is bringing us into right here. Like this is what he's talking about in the second half of the chapter. In light of a God who has given up his power, laid down his life for your salvation, in light of that kind of a God, in light of the realities of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is then how you should live. He talks about loving one another. But it's not just the friends and not just the family and not just the people who think like you, look like you, already believe like you. He talks about loving your enemies in the second half of chapter 12. He says in verse 10, love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor to one another. He says in 14, bless those who persecute you. In other words, expect this. As a believer, you know there's going to be persecution in this world. And certainly they were experiencing that incredibly in the first century. Like when they talk about persecution, they're not talking about Starbucks at Christmas doing Xmas or anything like that. That's not persecution. They're talking about literally costing them in their lives. And what he says right there is bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 18, if possible, he says, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all people. And then in verse 21, as the entire chapter wraps up, he says, do not be overcome by evil. Instead, overcome evil by doing what is good. This is how the chapter wraps up. And then he moves into chapter 13, verse 1, where it says, be subject to governing authorities. In other words, this is how evil is overcome. In the context of a government that is incredibly oppressive, incredibly unjust, you do not align with policies, character, whatever the thing may be, evil is overcome not by adding evil to evil, but by blessing those who curse you and giving honor instead of a curse. It's by doing everything you could possibly do to live peaceably with all people. It's by doing good, no matter the amount of evil, so that evil can be overcome. And so this is where Paul goes in chapter 13. And many of us read it today and we're outraged by it because everything about this is backwards. But can you imagine what it would be like for a first century church and for a first century believer who's only just now responded to the truth of the gospel, not the history not 2,000 years of church tradition or anything like that. They've simply understood Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. I'm following this man. And now he's saying, hey, to your oppressors, to your people that are evil in your life, no, 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 this is how I want you to live. It doesn't make any sense apart from the context and apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is where Paul goes here in this text. Because again, church, like if you and I are following a God who used his power, had all the power and authority in the world, and saw fit to love you and me, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, persecutors of the name of God, 
right? The argument all throughout the early chapters of, of, of Romans right here. If God chose to empty himself and to lay his life down for the salvation of all who would come to him in genuine faith, then you and I better believe that following Jesus is going to require something very, very different in the way that we react to our governing authorities today. And so there's a number of different commentaries that are coming into chapter 13, and they're all making the exact same point. They're all saying, okay, well, it seems like Paul is really going out of his way to make this point really clear to Caesar primarily, not primarily, but also maybe. They're, trying to say, they're, they're saying, hey, it seems like Paul is going out of his way to make a point to Caesar who will be reading these letters at this time, to make a point about how different Christians really are, and that the way that we oppose government is not by overthrowing it, they say. And so they talk about how this is probably a really, really important point to make at that point in time because there's a lot of different religious philosophies who believe that the way we usher in the kingdom of God right now is through force or whatever means may be necessary. There's a number of different, uh, different philosophies. We've seen this throughout history and things like that. Various theocracies come and they come and take over through force tear down the different places of worship, erect, be it mosques or different places of worship over there, force ways of worship upon the people, oppress people in the process, and it goes a number of different ways. Back in Jesus's day, this was the religious zealots. And so you may remember there's a, there's a disciple named um, Simon the Zealot, right? This is what he was called, not Simon Peter, the fisherman, not anything like that, but Simon the Zealot. And if, if you follow the the trackings on the chosen or something like that, you've been following these stories or anything there, uh, you, you saw a highlight of his life. But the zealots, the religious zealots were a people that believed it was their responsibility to usher in the kingdom of God through force, through political power, through opposition. And so they came in here and uh, you see this in Simon's life. And this is who he was before he met Jesus. He would come in and, and they were part of a group that would assassinate Roman authorities on behalf of their freedom. They thought this is the way that God was going to be glorified in the end. And meanwhile, like, this is one of the reasons that many, many people did not understand Jesus was the promised Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah that was going to look different. They were expecting a Savior that was going to be very, very different, who was going to come in and, and restore Israel through political force and victory and things of that nature. Meanwhile, Jesus comes in and he says things like, okay, my kingdom that I'm bringing in right now is not of this world. And he, and he doesn't fight the Roman authorities or anything. He submits to them. He lays down his life that evil could be overcome. I don't know if you remember the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, but um, it's just before the crucifixion. This is just after Judas's betrayal. The Roman guards are coming in, and they're about to take Jesus away. Peter rises up, fiery Peter, love his passion, love his fury. He's protecting Jesus. This is the one that he loves. And so Peter pulls out a sword. He chops, chops a dude's ear off. And you remember, like, Jesus comes in and he stops him. And what does he say? He says, Peter, put your sword away. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Don't you think that I can call on my father and he's going to deliver me? In other words, like, don't you think that I can do something about this if I wanted to? Like, you know who I am. You've seen what I can do. You know my power and authority. Like, don't you think that I could do something about this if that's what I wanted to do? But he says in verse 54, he says, if I did that, how would the scriptures be fulfilled? And so with that, he turns to the crowds and he asks them a question. He says, am I leading a rebellion here that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? In other words, is this what you think that I came to do? Did you think that I just came to overthrow Rome and bring in Israel's freedom and, and political independence like right now? Is that what you think primarily my whole mission is about? He says, every day I sat in the temple courts teaching. You never arrested me. 
In other words, like, this is how I came to usher in my kingdom, right? He says, I didn't come to be served later on. I came to serve, and I came to lay down my life as a ransom for many. Church, like, that's how different Jesus is. This is how different his kingdom is. He says things like, the last will be first, the first will be last. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled. John 13, 35, he says, the world will know that you're with me by your love for one another. And then he defines the one another as not just your friends and the people that like you and everything like that, but the world will know you're a follower of Christ. The world will know you're a follower of mine by your love for your enemies. He talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's wrong. We never talked about hating your enemy or anything like that. Nevertheless, that's what you've heard. And so he says, I'm telling you this, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. It's exactly what Paul's referencing right here. Point being, everything about following Jesus is different. The kingdom he came to bring in is upside down compared to our natural inclinations and our natural desires to go and to take things by force and to bring in things our way. Jesus calls us to something different. I'll never forget this time last year. It was shortly after George Floyd and uh, the entire country was talking about what was taking place. Right, and uh, one of our uh, pastors in town, Conway Edwards, who's the pastor over at One Community Church, one of the largest African-American churches in all of Dallas. It's a place I love to go and, and visit in July when I get a little bit of time off. Uh, he came out there, and uh, in response, there, you know, there was a lot of different um, rallies, and there was a lot of different protests taking place all around the city, really all around the country. Uh, he called for about 120 churches in Cullen County to come together at the, sto- at the, at the steps and pray. And so they came out there, and churches came out in droves to the city, and, and they came and they prayed for the city and for the community. And I'll never forget one of the interviews that I saw on TV, but he, they, one of the reporters came out there, and they asked him, and they said, okay, so why did you decide to come out here? Why, why did you come and decide to throw your own little rally over here rather than joining any of the number of other rallies that were already in existence? And, and I love his response. He goes, well, that answer is simple. We're called to do things differently. And this is what he said. He said, we gather together and we speak about the injustices at hand. We do call for change. And then we trust God to move supernaturally and through the hands and the feet of the church. But we do it all peacefully because Jesus has called us to be different. And so they came together and they prayed and they came together and they spoke and they came together and then they came together unified, calling on God to come and to move. By the way, this is how King did it back in the day. Right? They, would, they would have special trainings for people in their protests so that they could be prepared to do it well and to do it peacefully, to be able to respond honorably and with respect when they were provoked. And you remember how they did it. They would take people that were about to go to the streets and they would put them through a training and they would bring them into a room and they would scream insults and accusations at them. And they would prepare them for the antagonism that they were about to see on the streets so that they would be prepared Because they understood that God called them to come and to speak into things in a very, very different way. And so Paul comes in here in chapter 13 and he gives us three words to to provide a foundation or a filter through which we think about engaging with our government and some of the things that we may be seeing today. And this is applicable no matter where you are at any time in history or all around the world. But three little words, submit, honor, and respect. These are the words that get repeated here in the context of this regime, which is a thousand times more horrific than any of us can imagine today. Pay your taxes and obey the law, even if you don't want to, he says in verse verse 1. Honor those whom honor is owed, he says. Respect those whom respect is owed. And so again, like we have to acknowledge because this gets really, really, really tricky. Really for a couple of different reasons. Number one, like this does not replace the prophetic role, the truth-telling role of the church 
or our responsibility to tell the truth in any form or fashion. We know this because all throughout Scripture, we see prophets rising up, speaking truth to kings, calling them to repentance. And we're not talking about passivity. We're not talking about um, sitting on the sidelines or anything like that. Uh, We see Nathan coming and rebuking King David for his sin in the land. Uh, We see Jehu coming and condemning Basha, the king of Israel in 1 1 Kings chapter 16, uh, accusing him of leading the people into the sin of idolatry like his predecessor Jeroboam. Uh, We see this, Ahijah does it with King Solomon. But all throughout scripture, we see this taking place. Every single king that rises up, there's a corresponding prophet who's coming up and speaking truth to that king who's in power here. And so we're not talking about silencing that role. We're not talking about not opposing, or we're not talking about passivity or anything like that over here. What we are talking about here is parameters by which we think about communicating that truth message. And so that's one of the tensions that we face because like that's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of spectrum there in how we go when we talk about these things. The second tension here is that when he talks about submission, we got to understand we're not talking about absolute submission, right? And we know that again because this is the testimony from beginning to end in Scripture. We see uh, in Exodus chapter 1, Shifra and Pua, two Hebrew midwives who defied the orders of Pharaoh when they were told to go and to kill every baby boy in the land. And they defied their orders, and in doing so, not only saved however many babies' lives there were, saved Moses' life in the process, whereby God uses Moses, rises him up in the end to come and bring about deliverance and freedom to his people in the end. But he uses their defiance in the middle of that thing. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, we're going to see this in the New Testament. They're out there, and the, the gospel is exploding on the scene. They're preaching the gospel like crazy. They're gathering together in worship. And you remember what happens. Rome comes in. And they persecute them. They shut down their opportunity to preach the gospel. And they make it illegal to do that. We read about this in verse 18. It says, Peter and John are on trial before the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel. And it says this. They were commanded not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. They were commanded not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges, they say. As for us, like, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. It's the same thing in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Different trial, different day, different set of apostles, the exact same thing going on, and they simply stand before the Sanhedrin, and they say, sorry, guys, like, I can't go with you there. Like, I can't go with you there. And they say, we have to obey God rather than man. Even Jesus is going to allude to this. Matthew 22, many commentators are saying, hey, there's a strong parallel between what Paul's saying right here in this text with what Jesus already said in the Sermon on the Mount, but what he also talked about when it came time to paying taxes to Caesar. And you remember this back in, in the Gospels. Matthew's going to write, this about, write about this in Matthew 22. Um, but he talks about how this is a time when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they were trying to trap him in his words. And so they ask him this question. They say, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? And the reason it's a trap is because As we know, the Romans were incredibly oppressive. They were overtaxing the Jews at that time. Obviously, no one's in favor of that. Not only was there overtaxation and being unfair treatment toward the Jews and the early believers, uh, but they were spending those taxes on horrific things. Uh, They were spending those taxes on persecuting and killing other Jews and believers. Like, this is what they were doing. He was using those taxes to build up this incredibly lavish lifestyle no one was in affirmation of. And they were using those taxes to come in to build a coliseum which would be used by Rome to, again, persecute and kill other Christians. 
And so he, here's the trap, right? They ask him this question, and the trap is, okay, well, if Jesus, comes and, uh, if, if Jesus comes and says, yes, you need to be paying your taxes to Caesar, then the Jews are going to be really, really mad because um, he's supporting their oppression, essentially, right? You're paying money to something that's oppressing us. Uh, on the other hand, if he says, no, you don't need to pay those taxes, then Rome has what they need to take Jesus into their hands and to crucify him right then and there in time it's not played out or anything like that. And so you remember how Jesus responds to this one? He calls for a coin. And he says, let me see this coin. He says, whose face is on the center of this coin? And the crowds turn and they say, Caesar's. He says, that's right. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you give to God what is God's. And Matthew writes that the crowds marveled at his teaching. And the reason they marveled at his teaching was because they understood what he was saying right here. He's saying that this coin bears the image of Caesar. And so you give that back to Caesar. But you bear the image of God. And so you give yourself first and foremost to God. Always, always, always. And and this is the principle that's in play. Yes, we submit to government. Yes, we should always, always, always show honor and respect and deference always. But we are always giving ourselves first and foremost to our creator and to the God whose image we bear. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. But he says, if the state commands what God forbids... Or, if the state forbids what God commands, then civil disobedience is a Christian duty. I'm going to say that again. If the state commands what God forbids, or if the state forbids what God commands, it is our responsibility for civil disobedience. I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all throughout Scripture, right? This is the story that all kids, like we grew up on, the fiery furnace. Like we love this story. Like that is civil disobedience. This is them coming to a point in time saying, hey, I can't go with you there. You're calling me to do something. It's not absolute submission here. Like this is when they're living as exiles in Babylon. These are Jewish boys, teenage boys. Their whole world, their whole family, their whole land has been destroyed and defeated. They've been brought into exile, living in Babylon under an evil, oppressive king named Nebuchadnezzar. The king comes and he builds a 90-foot statue of himself, and he demands that everyone in the land bow down and worship. And what do they do? They look at him and they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, which is what he prescribed, this is the punishment for what would happen if they didn't do that. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Even if he doesn't, we want you to know your majesty. I want you to notice the repetition in this response here. Your majesty, your majesty. Honor, respect in the middle of defiance here. It is a different way of communicating here. Honor and respect in the middle of defiance. He says, we still will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. In other words, like there's some things we can go along with and there's other things that we can't. There's some things that, hey, uh, not explicitly commanded or dismissed in, in scripture or anything, but like I can go with you here when we cannot go with you here. And you remember how God honors this thing. Like they get tossed in the fire. Jesus joins them in the fire as the fourth person in this fire. No one dies. No one's burned uh, in that fire. Everyone watching is amazed at the miracle that's taking place. And all of a sudden, there's a second little revival taking place in Babylon where people are now all of a sudden bowing to Yahweh instead of that 90-foot statue. I'm telling you, Charlie, this is what God does. He honors our honor. He honors it when we sit there and say, hey, vengeance is yours, God. Whatever you want to come and accomplish in this thing, like I understand that there's a point in time that I'm coming to my faithfulness and there's some things that are completely out of my control and I'm trusting you, the God who reigns, to come and take matters into your hands. Like this is what he does. He honors our honor. 
Right? He's the God who has it under control. This is Joseph submitting to Potiphar after he was sold as a slave into, uh, by his brothers. This is him honoring his brothers a little bit later on when the easy thing to do would have been to rip them apart. But God uses him and he rises him to a position of prominence so that he can be used by God to bring about relief in the middle of a famine. Like this is the sovereignty and the power and the goodness of God. This is Daniel living as an exile in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar as well as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Same time, same setting. The same thing. He's taken into exile and he's brought into Babylon. And what does he do? He receives a brand new name. Can you imagine this? He's a teenage boy living in Babylon under the evil king's regime, and he gives him a brand new name. Your name's no longer going to be Daniel, this Hebrew name. Your name is going to be Belshazzar, named after the Babylonian god Bel. Like, that's how disrespectful and dishonoring it is. Like, this, is what, this is what he does. He serves in the king's government. He even studies their astrology and their false religions. He, goes, he doesn't abide by them. He doesn't worship them. He does go through the process, and he learns them. And then when it's time to eat their food, which is something that God specifically commanded, hey, you cannot eat certain things over here, what does he do? It says in verse 8, it says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Can you imagine? Like, he's not, he's not sitting there just yelling and screaming at him. He's not sitting there just open defiance. He's going, hey, I need to talk to you about this issue over here. Like, my God calls me to walk in this way. I cannot eat these foods. Now, God had caused, I love this verse 9, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion on Daniel. In other words, God is out there doing things that Daniel can never do. Daniel can't control compassion. Daniel can't control whether this guard over here repents or not. Daniel can't control King Nebuchadnezzar. He can submit. He can honor him. He can respect. He can do all these things. And at the end of the day, he has to trust God that he's going to come in and he's going to change this man's heart. And it's exactly what he does right here. God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official tells Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord my king who's assigned your food and drink. What do we do? So Daniel says to the guard, he says, please, sir, test your servant. This is how he sees himself serving in the king's household. I'm a servant. Please, sir, test your servant. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare us to the other young guys around here to see uh, and, and, uh, who eat the royal food and treat us in accordance with what you see. Like this is how he deals with it. It's just please and thank you all over the place. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine using that kind of language with such a horrific king? Like, this is what he does. He, even in disobedience, like, God raises him up, and he honors our honor. Chapter 2 comes around. God gives Daniel this dream that Nebuchadnezzar's going down. You remember this story? Like, Daniel's a prophet. He has this very, very vivid dream. Nebuchadnezzar's time is coming to an end. And, and, and Nebuchadnezzar hears about it. He's saying, hey, I need to know about this dream. Can you come and tell me about it? Can you imagine, like, how giddy you would feel saying, hey, you know what? Bin Laden, like, your time is coming to an end, bro. Like, you'd come into that prophetic time, right? And you're going, you'd be smiling a little bit. You'd be giddy. Like, can you imagine coming and bringing this news to the person you didn't vote for in the last election? Your time is going down. Like, this is the setting. And listen to how, listen to how he responds to him. He says, oh, king, I wish it was anyone but you. This is how Daniel brings the news to the king. I, I need you to come and tell me what's going on. And before he gets into, hey, you're going down, bro. Oh, king, if it was anyone but you, everything about it is upside down. Everything is upside down compared to what we naturally would want to do. Yeah, bro, you're going down. My God is going to destroy you. Your evil is done with. 
Oh, king, if it was anyone but you. Chapter five and six, it comes around again, and like Nebuchadnezzar comes and says, hey, no more praying. You remember this? He's like hoodwinked into it and everything. Like, no more praying. You can't pray in the land. It is illegal for you to pray. And Daniel's just going, yeah, I, I can't go with you there. I, I, I can't go with you there because God has called us to this thing. A defiance in this point in time. You remember how he goes about it? Like three times a day, he goes to the window. Like he's not even trying to hide it. He doesn't pull the curtains or anything like that, most likely. He's just sitting there going, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, I am called to follow him first and foremost. And of course, he gets caught. And you remember what the punishment is? It's the lion's den. And so Nebuchadnezzar kind of realizes, hey, I got duped into this thing by my boys over here. And I'm a little bit, I'm kind of regretting this. And kind of, I kind of believed in God and, and Daniel's God back with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego days. Kind of have a little bit of a faith over here. And so he tells Daniel, and he says, hey, I'm going to pray. And if your God is real, you can, he can come and he can deliver you. Throws Daniel into the lion's den. And what does God do? He comes and he brings an angel and he shuts those lions' mouths. Daniel doesn't wrestle the lions. He doesn't put them to death. He doesn't put them in a sleeper hold and survive the night or anything like that. No, 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 no. Like God comes in. He does the thing that you cannot do. He doesn't have to fight for himself. He doesn't always have to fight for himself. He says, no, 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 this is what God's called me to do. My focus is, you know what? I'm his, I bear his image. I'm following him no matter what. If it costs me my life, it costs me my life. If you want to put me, you want to see me dead, I, I will gladly die in following Jesus because in the end, he's gonna be better glorified in the end. And it's exactly what happens. The God, angel comes and shuts the lion's mouth. Nebuchadnezzar comes the next day. Daniel, are you there? Yes, I'm here. And what happens? The third mini revival in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar rises up and he's going, oh my gosh, your God is God. Your God is God. He makes another decree and he demands that everybody in Babylon now worship Daniel's God, which is probably a little bit too far there because you cannot force that. But nevertheless, that is Nebuchadnezzar's way. I'm just going to force it. I'm going to impose it. But like, this is what happens. He sees that God is God because Daniel stepped out of the way and he let the God who reigns be the God who reigns. Church, this is what he does. He's never needed our power because he's always been the one with power. He's never needed our strength because he has all the strength in the world. It's why he's saying, leave vengeance to me. I'm the one who reigns. I'm the one who's sovereign over the good kings and the bad. I'm the one who knows the beginning from the end. You honor me. And I'll see to it that good overcomes the evil in the end. And even if it's not immediate, even if there's suffering, guess what? I'm going to be glorified in the middle of it, which is so much more important than our comfort or our rights or whatever it may be in the season that we may be in. It's what Nick Ripkin calls the insanity of God. The fact that some of the most powerful gospel movements the world has ever seen take place under the most dark and oppressive regimes through some of the most humble, honorable, and submissive expressions of faith you can possibly imagine. Kind of like the early church that we see all throughout the book of Acts, who never had the privilege of seeing their man in power. Whoever that person was never had the privilege of being in a values majority, being in a religious majority, walking and living in a world where people affirm their lifestyles, whatever that may be. They're not sitting there going, hey, great, Caligula's out on the street again and, and he's wearing women's clothes or whatever. <laughs> like he's, they're not freaking out at that kind of thing. They just sit there and say, no, 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 no. I know whose I am. I know the God whose image I bear. I know the one who reigns supreme over this entire thing. And so I'm gonna give to Caesar what is Caesar's and I'm gonna give back to God my life what is God's. 
And so they got on their faces and they kept being faithful to him. They kept going and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and they got down on their knees and they kept praying over and over and over again to the God who reigns and the Holy Spirit came and shook the place where they prayed and he brought about a renewal like we've never seen and he just kept adding to their number day after day after day to the point that the gospel movement began with 500 people immediately after the resurrection and went to about 55% of the Roman Empire in the first 300 years. Church, that is how Rome is one. It is not through bringing in a force. It is not through our strength. It is through trusting the king who reigns and honoring his word as he calls us to relate in the conversations we engage in, in the injustices we try to rectify, and trusting that God is going to come and do the thing that you and I are not capable of doing. It does not mean passivity. It does not mean sitting on the sidelines. But it does shape the way that we go and we engage. Church, this is how Rome is won. It's not force with force and it's not evil with evil. It's submission, honor, and respect and an unwavering trust in the God who reigns. And so today my hope is that you and I would be able to rest in that that we would be able to take God at his word and that we would be able to believe that he is able to accomplish things in and through you, in and around our world here through honoring him in the way that we engage. And he'd be able to do things in ways that we cannot do for ourselves. We'd be able to get out of the news and all the different things that make us want to rise up and fight and do things our own way. That we would remember that Jesus' way is completely different. It is upside down to every natural inclination we have to fight. That's coming from someone who enjoy fighting. That God would be glorified in the end. That his church would be strong. That his people would be steadfast. Because we serve the God who reigns. Father, we love you, God. We confess that you are in control. We confess that you have all power and authority over every governing authority in our lives. Not only here in America, all around the world. We confess that you are the God who is in control. Father, we long to see righteousness reign. Father, we long to see justice reign and prevail. We know that there's no one in the world who cares more about justice and righteousness than you do. And so, Father, would you give us the wisdom? Father, I even pray, God, would you give us the humility we need to trust you as we engage this world in which we live? Father, I pray that you would move like you did in Daniel's time, like you did in the time of the early church, like you've done all throughout history, where you honor believers' honor, where you add to our number daily those who are being saved. And even if it means taking away some creature comforts, Father, we pray that you would add to the church, that you would be glorified in the end, Father, that we would rest in that. God, that we would take hope in the fact that you are coming back again to rule and to reign one day. You'll wipe away every tear, all pain, all sin, all sorrow. God, will be done away. The old things will be passed away. The new things will come. We look forward to that time. And in the meantime, we just simply say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Do a work in me. Do a work in our church. Do a work in the big C church in America all around the world that trusts you tremendously, sees you lifted up, 
in the end. God, we love you. We give you all things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.